Good morning, uh, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be. Welcome um, to our webinar uh, to celebrate the launch, uh, slightly belated after the actual uh, coming out of the uh, winter uh, issue of Jerusalem Quarterly. Um, welcome, everyone. Uh, we're very excited um, on behalf of the uh, co-editor of Jerusalem Quarterly, uh, Lisa Taraki, and myself, Alex Winder, the other co-editor. Um, we're really excited uh, to have some of the contributors to um, that special special issue of the Jerusalem Quarterly um, organized around the theme uh, of um, Jerusalem's interrupted futures. Um, I want to thank um, Palestine Naili, who was uh, the guest editor of that special issue and who will um, uh, say a bit uh, about the kind of overarching theme and also present on her contribution there. I also want to thank the other uh, contributors who are joining us today, uh, Julio Jerez and uh, Semi, um, as well as all of the contributors um, to the, the special issue. Um, I also want to thank uh, Laura and Carol and all the IPS staff for, for making the uh, webinar possible. And of course, um, thank all of you for joining us today. Um, uh, basically, the format of the event, I'll turn it over to Philistine in a few minutes to, to say a little bit about um, the theme of the issue uh, overall. Um, and then we'll have uh, uh, presentations by uh, four of the contributors, uh, Julio uh, Moreno uh, Thirujano, um, Harris Ford, Samih Berkatalai, uh, and Philistine uh, Naili. Um, I'll introduce each of them before they speak, um, and we'll have uh, an opportunity for Q&A after each speaker, um, as well as a uh, Q&A, open Q&A session at the end. Um, but just to let everyone know that Julio has to uh, leave before the end, so if you have questions for him, um, especially, please uh, do put those uh, in the Q&A function um uh before uh or during his talk or after his talk um you can put questions uh in the q a at any time and i encourage you to do that um and again uh really excited to uh have all of our speakers say a little bit about their contributions to the special issue of the jerusalem quarterly i'm going to turn it over now to to philistine to say a little bit uh, more about the issue. Philistine Niley is the issue editor, as I mentioned, and uh, she's currently a postdoctoral researcher at the Department of Social Sciences, uh, Near and Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Basel, and a research in, uh, associate at the Institut Francais du Proche-Orient, IFPO. Um, she's the author of La Palestine entre patrimoine et providence, uh, pardon my very bad French, um, and was recently awarded a consolidator grant by the Swiss, Swiss National Science Foundation, um, for a project dealing with the interrupted futures of the Arab world that will run from 2024 until 2029. Congratulations, Philistine, and the floor is yours. Thanks a lot, Alex, and um, thanks for all of, to all of you for being here. Um, I'm very happy that we'll be able to, um, to finally launch this special issue, which was a real pleasure to coordinate, and I would like to thank the, um, the editorial committee again for, for welcoming the issue and um, for making it possible. Um, and, and of course, uh, to all the contributors, um, a great thank you also. Um, just, yeah, to give you a sense, I mean, th this started with, uh, with a, this uh, special issue started with a call for papers, um, which, uh, yeah, began with the observation that facts on the ground um, very powerfully shape everyday life in Jerusalem. Um, but also influence the way we look at the recent history of the city. So what can history and historians do in this situation? Should we limit ourselves 
to keeping an inventory of these facts created by sheer force? Or can we do more? As Reinhard Koselek pointed out, history may be made by the victors in the short run, but ultimately historical gains in knowledge stem from the vanquished. And indeed, the history of Jerusalem contains many threads of unfulfilled alternative futures that need to be uncovered and unmuted. The analysis of interrupted futures that we propose in this special issue is not counterfactual history that consists in imagining other outcomes. The approach used here is not speculative, but rather interpretive. We all base ourselves on archival work, um, operating very much in the spirit of Jacques Derrida's conception of the archive as a store for the future. This work entails seizing elements of history, such as plans, projects, and programs, and saving them from oblivion so that a new generation might base their understanding of history on a more complete panorama of the past than that created by the victors. So in this issue, the authors take hold of threads of unfinished schemes conceived just before or during important moments of rupture, the end of the Ottoman Empire, the termination of the British Mandate, and the abrupt close of the Jordanian administration of Jerusalem. The plans and projects presented in several of these articles were the result of governmental or international initiatives at various levels. Some plans, such as the British Mandate Scheme to build a parliamentary building in the city, point to the vivid contradictions of the colonial political structure. By contrast, it is important to remember that in the case of the Ottoman and the Jordanian administrations of the city, Palestinians were key political actors on the local level, something that was less the case during the mandate period. So we have the pleasure of having um, four um, of, the, of the articles represented here today, um, but four others um, unfortunately are absent. And, and so I would like to just um, represent them very briefly by giving a short outline of what these other articles also um, um, bring forth. So Maison um, Charkawi provides in some ways a nice companion piece to Semir Gokatalai's article with her review of the recent exhibition about the Arab fairs entitled Al Marad that was curated by Nadia Busada and Luzan Munayer at the Khalil Sakakini Cultural Center in Ramallah at the end of last year. She provides additional context concerning the obstacles faced by Palestinian Arab efforts at small-scale industrialization and expansion of trade during the mandate period. Ilan Papé, in his article, analyzes the different attempts to create an Arab or Islamic university in British Mandate Jerusalem. While none of these plans succeeded, there were institutions such as the Arab College that played an important role in creating cultural capital and a national consciousness. Pape writes that these institutions, and I quote, would contribute after the Nakba to the resurrection of Palestinian education, scholarship, and culture, despite the horrific catastrophe of 1948. This cultural continuity meant that Palestinian culture was not obliterated in the Nakba, and that those who survived it could build on the mandatory legacy for the continued cultural struggle along the political one. Papi hereby introduces the individual and social dimension of this history of possibilities. In their joint article, Vincent Lemire and Maria Chiara Rioli compare the potential of two underexplored sets of archives, 
the municipal archives of Jerusalem, particularly for the Jordanian period, and the UNRWA archives, which by the way, are at the center of the very last issue of uh, JQ, which I also invite you to discover. Um, while the first, meaning the municipal archives, highlight little known efforts at rehabilitating and restructuring the eastern part of the city, the UNRWA archives contain what Rioli calls the genealogical, demographic, and social history of Palestinian refugees, as well as traces of their political and individual ambitions, efforts, and potentialities. Michelle Campos, who we had hoped to have with us um, here today, emphasizes in her article, comparing the Ottoman tramway scheme to the existing Israeli light rail, that the plan for a tramway in the early 20th century was intimately linked to the particular form of Ottoman urban citizenship that existed in Jerusalem during that period. That idea of citizenship included what she calls a modernist discourse that underscores Jerusalem as a city of all of its residents. By contrast, today's Israeli light rail signals the limits of Jerusalem as a shared city in both practice and imagination, as she says. Now, let me turn it over to Julio Joriano, who will present an article that he wrote together with Yair Wallach. Julio is a PhD candidate at um, SOAS in London and is writing his dissertation on colonial material culture in British Mandate Palestine. The floor is yours, Julio. Uh, thank you, Palestine, for uh, for the presentation, for putting together this special issue. Uh, Alex, for chairing the event, and, and obviously all, all the uh, IPS staff behind the scenes. Now, I am going to present a paper I co-wrote with Jair Walla, um, and the title is, uh, let me present, yeah, this one, I started too fast, yes. Um, so the title of this paper is um, Unbuilt Parliament, British Colonial Plans for a Legislative Assembly in Jerusalem. And like the rest of the issue, uh, this issue of the Jerusalem Quarterly is the story about something that never happened. Um, at some point, Yair and I uh, were looking into the material remains of the British government in Palestine and came across the project of the central government offices. This was a large building or a compound that would accommodate all government departments, replacing the archipelago of rented offices across Jerusalem. This was never built. Um, but we started to read relevant archival material and realized that the idea of a legislative council hall appeared and disappeared through the two decades and a half in which this project was active. The historiography generally has dismissed the idea of the Legislative Council. It is usually mentioned briefly, if at all, uh, and always as a prop to assess British institution building as a failure. While British government in Palestine was not particularly successful, especially when, when talking about institution building, this paper, we think, help us understanding the multiple British approaches to a constitutional debate in Palestine at different stages uh, of the mandate. The body of my presentation today will contextualize the multiple designs of the assembly hall uh, within the architectural structures that it was projected and also within the political circumstances that made this projection relevant. 
But um, we need to have in mind two caveats during this presentation. First, the Legislative Assembly Hall was always designed as part of the central government office. This means the legislative power was always understood as an attachment to the British executive, uh, which speaks volumes about the lack of independency of this institution. In other words, uh, this would have been a representative body, but not necessarily a democratic one. And second, while British projects consider this parliament to be progressively more important, to eventually become indispensable in early 1940s, neither Palestinians nor Zionists were ever consulted about their needs or thoughts regarding this architectural project. So in 1922, uh, High Commissioner Samuels first proposed legislative legislative council that could replace the informal advisory council. This would have been a representative body as well, but it would have had virtually no authority and was designed to have a strong British Jewish majority. The Arab leadership rejected the proposal and the population boycotted the elections. But this was not the end of this idea. After the 1929 Burak riots, became the Passfield White Paper, which closed the door to Jewish immigration. But in 1931, the McDonald Black Letter reopened it again, doors to Jewish immigration. In this process of rethinking Palestinian Palestine constitutionally, the idea of the Legislative Council was retrieved. Um, Austin Barr Harrison, at the time, uh, the chief architect of the mandate was designing a central government office building for economic reasons. It was cheaper and more efficient to have all departments under one roof. He was required to introduce the assembly hall on the project. This is the project was being designed already, and in the middle of this design, he was forced to place it somewhere. Uh, the architect placed it at the back of the building rather unconvincedly. Uh, but he was so unhappy with the proportions of the design that he scrapped it completely and started anew. Now, the image that you're seeing here uh, is the result of the second design. The assembly hall uh, is not the red wing, it is rather the central part of this building, it is the semicircular part of the building that connects the two other wings. So it could be said that it was at once a deliberative heart of the executive building, but also it could be understood as an entrapped parliament by the colonial government. The negotiations about the political institution continued and the Arab leadership seemed to be receptive to the establishment of this representative body, despite its clear limitations. Uh, they probably thought of it as a platform to proclaim their grievances. However, Zionist leadership strongly rejected this, this proposal because the representative power had shifted from the original proposal in the 20s. The British House of Commons in London and then the House of Lords shut it down in early 1936. This could have been one of the reasons for the general strike that that followed uh, briefly afterwards, 
uh, which eventually led to the revolt in 37 to 39. Now, the building project was paused and the majority of the government departments were accommodated in the King David Hotel. In 1938, um, the Peel Report and the idea of partition altogether were rejected. So a unitary deliberative institution became a priority once more. Uh, meantime, the violence of the revolt made it necessary for the government to project a secure location for all its departments, reviving the idea of the central government office. Percy Winter, the chief architect of the mandate at this time, um, had designed rather a somber building for the government office. It could be built by modules accommodating a growing government. And just like some years before, the High Commissioner communicated the architect the need to introduce the assembly hall somewhere in this developing project. Uh, Winter, uh, instead of starting anew, decided to attach a wing. And here we see the wing of the legislative assemble that looks like a protuberance on the left. Again, the legislative is read as an appendix of the British government, echoing the aesthetics of a monumental prison-like building. Importantly, while the partition of Palestine was abandoned and they were literally designing uh, by national parliament, the logic of partition had entrenched. The assembly hall was shared, but unlike the previous designs, the common rooms were segregated. One room for Arab members, another one for Jewish members. They would prepare the sessions and rest in separate spaces. In August 1939, the project was approved. A budget was allocated, tenders were being published, and the plot of land purchased by this for this purpose was started to be excavated. This means the parliament was being built. But the following month, the war was declared and the project was paused one mo once more. In 1943, the mandatory government started to plan ahead for the post-war reconstruction of Palestine. And the central government building um, figured quite high in the list of priorities. The tone of discussion, however, had shifted. Economic or security considerations gave way to symbolic dimension of this project. Both the Palestinian and Zionist leadership at the time had managed to build flagship buildings for their national and political projects. Uh, the British had also built some important public buildings, but the High Commissioner residence uh, is in Jabal Mukaber, far from both the old and the new city. And the archaeology museum was not properly a governmental building. And also it was partially financed by the Rockefeller Foundation. There are other buildings like the Jerusalem Town Hall, Post Office, or even the Barclays Building, but none of them were significant enough in the eyes of the mandate government. The project of the central government office became once more uh, an opportunity to make a statement about British legacy in the Holy Land. It was 
once more been planned by Austin Barb Harrison, but the government had grown considerably by that time, so it needed a new plot of land. The former, uh, the former site near the Mamilla pool was too small, and they purchased a larger plot in Talvie. Harrison projected a group of buildings in a, in a compound. Uh, the Legislative Council was part of the central building, next to the Secretariat, the Attorney General, and the High Commissioner Office. This is at the core of this complex. Then, in other words, it was located in the most important part of the building. In fact, the architect proposed to expand it up to 20% of the built space, which would include a library, restaurants, retirement rooms, even a monumental staircase. Uh, we can see from this model that domes, columns, and other neo-Orientalist elements have been dropped. Uh, security plays a major role in this design. In fact, by being inside uh, the central building, uh, the assembly hall was enclosed within all the buildings of the compound, removed from the society it was supposed to represent. At the end of 1947, Harrison was notified of the suspension of the project. This is on the 6th of November of 1947, only 23 days before the UN partition plan was voted. Britain withdrew in May 48 without having built a central government office, not a legislative assembly hall. So why is this important? Uh, the architectural project alone, this is besides the political negotiations, to establish a legislative, a legislative council, uh, the architectural project left thousands of pages of documentation, including deliberation, images, designs, shadows of requirements, clay models, like the one we're seeing here in the, in the image. Um, there, there were a total of three plots of land purchased around Jerusalem for this purpose. One of them was even started to be excavated. An endless amount of bureaucratic work hours were dedicated to this. Um, and the project expanded over 25 years and it was still in place until the very last breath of the mandate. Dismissing it just because it was unsuccessful would be short-sighted. In some, we think that the deliberations over the legislative assembly chamber can be seen as a seismograph of British plans for Palestine's political and constitutional future. The change in place of the, of the council within the central government office reflects the internal debate about the nature of British presence in Palestine and the tangibility of this representative institution at every stage of the mandate era. Um, I hope uh, this was interesting, and if you would like to know more about this project, you can always read the whole paper online in the Jerusalem Quarter. Yes, thank you for your attention. Thank you, Julio. Thank you very much. Um, I think this uh, surely generates a lot of questions, and since you have to leave us early, I think I'm going to hand it over to um, to Alex, I think, who, who has a a look at the questions coming in? Yeah, I want to encourage anyone, uh, no questions as of yet, but encourage uh, anyone who has questions, um, uh, please uh, 
feel free to post them in the Q&A function uh, to drop them in the chat. Um, I guess uh, in case people are still thinking about questions, maybe I'll uh, ask uh, a question of Julio. I mean, I'm, I'm curious um, how you see this project, you know, are there other kind of comparable projects that, that you see it kind of, um, you know, connected to? Uh, are there things that, uh, you know, seemingly were fast-tracked for actually kind of being constructed, whereas this seemed to kind of linger? Um, you know, when I think about kind of, you know, purchasing plots of land and, and thinking about, you know, constructing something, I also think about the, you know, the decision to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem recently, for example, um, and kind of and and kind of plans to build a, a new embassy building in Jerusalem. So I'm kind of curious, you know, um, obviously you, you did a nice kind of job of explaining how to kind of think about this particular project and why it's important not to just kind of dismiss it because it wasn't built. But are there ways in which you kind of see this in relation to other kinds of projects that that also kind of helps us think about priorities or visions or imaginations? Um, yes, uh, thank you for the question. Uh, yes, of course. Uh, um, this project was not built, but other projects were. Um, and it is it's mentioned actually very uh, very clearly that, for example, the the Tegard project, the Tegard fortresses, took precedence on on the parliament. Uh, at some point, they they were deciding, and the office, the the um, the architect office was swamped with uh, the project of the Tegard buildings, while the parliament. This has started to uh, reflow, being reflowed. Um, yeah, it's it's clear that there are decisions that uh, were being there was a plan, but the actual decision is only taken once, and this parliament started to be built just once. Uh, there were other, um, yeah, other plans, other projects that took precedence. Yeah. We also have a, a question from Sam Bahur, um, uh, who asked, throughout these phases, uh, were the British submitting their plans um, to the United Nations or the League of Nations? I mean, given that it was a mandate, was there any kind of, was this kind of strictly within the British uh, purview, or was there any kind of degree of kind of international input or, or con consultation? Um. That's always the question. Theoretically, this is this is a mandate, so they had to respond to the international community. But in practice, um, I think Palestine was very much governed as a colony, and the conversations on this architectural project it never leaves the architect's office in relation to the high commissioner. Very rarely we have input from, from London, from colonial office London. So it's very much a local government uh, issue. Yeah. Thank you. Um, any other questions? And again, feel, you can feel free to, even if a, a question occurs to you later, um, you can feel free to uh, drop it in the Q&A. Um, I think I'm, if, if everyone will allow me, I'm going to actually switch the, the order of presentations because I think, we, you know, we can stay in the, the mandate period now um, and kind of keep things uh, chronological. So 
Um, if no one objects, I'll turn it over to Samih now. Um, uh, Samih uh, Gurkatalai is a PhD candidate in history at the University of California, San Diego. And he'll be speaking about his article, uh, Fair Competition, the Arab Fair in Mid-1930s Palestine. Thank you so much for the introduction, Alex. Can you hear me uh, now? Thank you so much. And before my uh, presentation today, I want to thank you, Dr. Falestin Naile, for the special issue, for editing it, and for including me in this project. And my presentation today is about the part of my PhD thesis. And my PhD thesis or broader project is about the political economy of trade fairs in the Middle East in the late 19th century and the early 20th centuries, or the late Ottoman Empire and the interwar Middle East. And today I'm just going to uh, present only a small part of my thesis, which is the Arab Fair in Jerusalem, uh, which took place in mandatory Palestine in 1933 and in 1934. And uh, my thesis is about the political and economic dimensions of business gatherings in the Balkans and the Middle East generally. And today my presentation is also a small analysis or summary of the Arab fair from an economic and political uh, perspective. Uh, if we can see the or the origins of the Arab fair, uh, laid in the Jairus, uh, laid in the Tel Aviv fair and or the Levant fair, uh, which took place in Tel Aviv and organized by Zionist organizations since nineteen uh, early twenties, uh, like early nineteen twenties, uh, Zionist organizations in Palestine, also uh, in Europe and the United States, they hosted several uh, trade fairs in uh, Tel Aviv uh, since the 1920s and uh, the Levant Fair continued until 1936 or until the Great Revolt. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, we can see changing attitudes of Arab businessmen or Arab uh, public in general in Palestine towards the Levant Fair. Uh, initially, we can see the participation of Arabs, Palestinians in the Levant Fair in the 1920s. They participated in as exhibitors, buyers or just visitors. But uh, after the riots in 1929, we can see their attitudes towards the Levant Fair change and eventually until uh, or during 1930s, uh, we can see the Arabs generally boycotted the Levant Fair. But starting in 1933, they started uh, or they hosted their own fair in Jerusalem. It was a, a small scale. It was a, uh, <clears throat> just a short uh, fair that took place twice in Jerusalem. And if you look at such fairs, they are initially business gatherings or commercial meetings, but they have also uh, political messages, political functions. Uh, and actually, if you look at the Arab fair, the British, the colonial uh, government or the British government in the United Kingdom, they played actually no role in the organization and operation of the Arab fair. Nonetheless, they own the fair in international organizations such as the League of Nations, stating as if they granted their support, as if they endorsed uh, the Arab fair. Uh, 
And uh, Arab leaders, journalists, and intellectuals, they disagreed with the British claim. And for example, according to Al Jami Al Arabiya, uh, the British uh, played no role in the organization of the Arab Fair, but they own it and they criticized the British attitudes because the British supported the Levant Fair which was organized by the Zionists, but the British did not want to support, provide any financial, uh, bureaucratic, or other kind of, other sort of aid to uh, Arabs in organizing the, their own fair. And they, why? Because according to, from the perspective of the British, the Arabs did not invite Jews to uh, the Arab fair, but according to Al-Jami Al-Arabiya and other Palestinian newspapers, there was not such condition for Jews. And actually, we can understand the British attitude towards threat fairs, even from the accounts of the British newspapers, such as the Times. And the Times thought that exhibits at the Arab fair were pathetic compared to the, those of uh, at the Levant fair. You can see similar such constructs uh, or such comparison between the Arab and Levant fairs in other Western outlets as well. Uh, in other words, uh, although Western sources, especially British newspapers, British official, semi-official accounts, they dislike and actually uh, make fun of the Arab fair, uh, officially the British own it as if they supported it. If we uh, look at uh, the history of the fair after 1934, it was not held and we don't see any fair uh, for the rest of the uh, mandate, although there were similar exhibitions by Arabs, uh, you know, after the Second World War, uh, but uh, for the especially for the rest of the interwar period, we don't see any such uh, fair that was hosted or arranged by uh, Arabs in Palestine. And in my research in this article, in the special issue, also in my broader project, I see, uh, I explain such, you know, uh, disruption or interruption of the fair uh, from a political perspective and stating that the Arab fair received limited support from other governments other Arab governments or uh, political leaders in the rest of the Arab world. And there was practically no governmental support in Palestine, although the British government bought in the center, colonial center and in Palestine, uh, all British officials, they wholeheartedly supported the Levant Fair. We don't see such support, such endorsements for uh, the uh, Arab Fair. And, uh, if you look at it from an artistic or cultural perspective, the Arab Fair was a success. And actually it brought hundreds of artists, merchants, young people, intellectuals from the Arab Middle East, also from North Africa. But from an economic and political perspective, it was not successful. And uh, if you look, compare the Arab Fair in Jerusalem to its counterparts in the rest of the post-Ottoman uh, world in the interwar period in the Balkans and the Middle East, we can see that the collaboration between businessmen and governmental authorities uh, was key to the success of such fairs. Examples included those in Cairo, Thessaloniki, Belgrade, Plovdiv, Izmir, and uh, also the, uh, the best, I guess, the counterpart to compare it was the Levant Fair. 
We can see that all these fairs in the rest of the post-Ottoman world, they were initially small-scaled and local initiatives. But thanks to the collaboration between business classes or business associations and governmental authorities, uh, they turned into internationally known and financially successful fairs over time. But the interruption of the uh, Arab fair uh, prevented its host city, Jerusalem, uh, from taking benefits of such fairs. Why? Because if you look at the benefits, both in the short term and long term benefits of such fairs, we can see that they created employment, they uh, brought revenue to municipalities, uh, they attracted uh, tourists to host cities, and there are many more financial, cultural benefits of such fairs. But the interruption of the Arab fair because of the lack of uh, official support and because of the British double standard uh, could not uh, bring such benefits to Jerusalem and Palestinians uh, in this period. Thank you so much for listening to me. Thank you, Sami. And uh, if uh... Um, anyone has questions, uh, again, feel free to uh, drop them in the Q&A or put them in the chat. Um, we'll have a kind of open Q&A at the end, of course, uh, as questions come to you. Um, but we'll also have uh, uh, the opportunity immediately after each speaker. Um, if uh, while folks are perhaps uh, kind of thinking or typing out their questions for Sami, we actually have a few questions for Julio um, that came in after uh, uh, the Q&A. So I'll, I'll pose one of those now. Um, uh, from uh, Randy de Guilham uh, for Julio, although it was, of course, a real architectural political project, uh, the question is, can one also look at the unbuilt parliament as a metaphor for the British mandate itself? Um, yes, of course. Um, I'm very fond of, of these sort of metaphors because we can read and we can interpret what happened through multiple, multiple lights. And, and yes, uh, somehow, um, British imperial control left something undone. Uh, they left without building much uh, of, of Palestine constitutionally. Um, another interesting metaphor as well is that um, they, uh, the, the government offices were uh, hosted at the, at the hotel, at the King David Hotel for over a decade. So like, and, and this was mentioned directly in documents, like, they were ready to pack up their their luggages and leave. No. So uh, yes, it was something left undone, and we were left uh, wondering. No? And uh, a question um, for Sami uh, from uh, Sam Bahur again: um, Are there records of the of the firms that exhibited at each fair? Um, do we know who the actual participants in in the Arab fair were? And I don't know the or I could not find a complete list, but there are you know uh, articles mentioning several firms saying that they you know such firms uh, these firms were particularly uh, successful. They were uh, their exhibits were good, uh, and also in later accounts like the you know classified ads of these firms, I can get a sense who were actually participated in. Why? Because you know many firms, many exhibitors, both Palestinians or other exhibitors 
countries from other countries and uh, they received medals prizes from the jury during the fair both fairs and uh, at later year or at you know in the rest of the decades uh, they marketed advertised such prizes so i can get a sense who actually uh you know exhibited but, but i don't have the complete list for the arab fair but for the levant fair uh, i have because they published catalogs after the fair and they gave full you know names full accounts but for the arab uh, fairs uh, both fairs I, I don't have the complete list do you have a sense of kind of what were the you know based on the incomplete information you have like what what were the kind of most what what, what were people kind of selling or or exhibiting or or uh, uh, kind of how did they make use of the fair? What, what were the major firms that, that kind of participated? Um, in like, you know, both for Palestinians and uh, other, you know, groups, uh, I guess the most common thing was textiles, like the textile by different types of the, you know, textile companies and uh, also some agricultural products, but it's not just agricultural commodities and products, I will say, they were also popular. And uh, if you look at, we can see kind of specialization uh, between foreign participants. For example, those from Aleppo, they have certain type of products. Uh, for example, they you know exhibited shoes or et cetera. And from Damascus, more textiles from Lebanon, soap, uh, also in Palestine, you can see such, you know, the differences based on uh, the host cities or based on the participants' origins. For example, if there are soap factories, uh, you can see participants, uh, pro, you know, exhibited their uh, most famous products or um, most demanded uh, products at the fair. Wonderful. Um, any other questions for Sami? If there are no other questions, I'll I'll try um, a question myself. Um, and I apologize. I sometimes go off um, off camera because I I I cough a lot, so that's why I disappear every once in a while. Um, Simi, I wanted to ask you um, what what I find interesting in in um, your approach is finally that we we see how the comparison allows us to reconstitute some of the potential that wasn't able to um to see the day uh with the arab fairs like and i and i guess that's something that um comes out more more generally maybe in your phd thesis so i wanted to to hear your your thoughts about this also as an approach to to look at uh some of these issues from a comparative perspective on the on the post ottoman level uh thank you so much uh, for the question uh, in my thesis, like I have the late Ottoman part and the interwar uh, part, and I uh, adopt uh, two types of comparisons. First, the Ottoman and post-Ottoman countries with their counterparts in the rest of the world, like South America, East Asia, or other countries that have uh, similar problems or issues with economic, pro uh, you know, uh, development. I will say, and other types of comparisons is the comparisons between post-Ottoman countries. Of course, it's not easy to make such comparisons because some of them were politically independent or economically more developed, and some of them were colonies. It's not easy to compare them. 
term. But I think if we have such comparisons, we can understand not only the potentials of such fairs that could have provided to Jerusalem and Palestinians, but also understands uh, the British attitudes towards uh, Arabs in general. Uh, because, you know, fairs, they're just one part of the story, larger story. Even for the economic life, fairs were just one part of the biggest, uh, bigger problems or bigger concerns, bigger issues. And uh, when we compare it, not only with the Levant Fair or the other, you know, uh, counterparts in the Middle East and the Balkans, uh, we can see, uh, actually, we can better grasp uh the relationship between colonial authorities and palestinians and i think such comparisons are also useful uh, because uh if you look at the colonies or colonials mandates in the middle east including lebanon syria and uh, in the 20s the iraq uh, we can see that the worst case in terms of government support was basically Palestinian Arabs when it came to business associations and trade fairs. And it's not just only between issue or, you know, this or in general Zionist uh, enterprises and Palestinian enterprises, but even if we compare, make comparisons between Palestinian Arabs and Syrians, we can see that the British attitude was the worst in terms of uh, support to uh, business classes, indigenous business classes. Thank you for the question. I don't know if I can, you know, I, I, if I reply to it. Thank you Thank very you. much. Well, that was very, very instructive. Thank you. Yeah. Um, if there's no further questions at the moment, uh, we'll turn now to, to Harris Ford, uh, who is a PhD student at the University of Saskatchewan, Canada, located on Treaty 6 territory. Uh, Harris's work focuses on relations between the Mashrik and the West, especially through the United Nations, as well as global communication networks and the decolonization of information. Um, and he's speaking today about his article, uh, I won't say I wanted the job, the United Nations search for a special municipal commissioner in Jerusalem, 1948 to 49. Uh, Harris, the floor is yours. Thank you, Alex. Um, and thank you, everybody, as well, uh, Palestine, for believing in this article and, and having a part of this, um, Julio and Semi for being here, um, and the Institute for Palestine Studies as well for setting this up, Laura behind the scenes doing, doing a lot of stuff here. So just thank you for having me having me on here. It's, it's still incredible how much this little project is, has gone for me. So just, just thank you. I'll share. Green here. Okay. So this article is all about a special municipal commissioner for Jerusalem, which is a, a clunky term um, that will get unpacked a little bit more here. But essentially, you can think of this special municipal commissioner as essentially a quasi-mayor for, for Jerusalem that was attempted by the United Nations right at the turn, right at right at Nakba. As, as the British mandate was receding, what the future of Jerusalem was, was gonna look like. Um, also very important right off the start here, the United Nations is imperial and acted imperial throughout this whole venture as well. So if we think about imperialism as being uh, about relationships and the relational aspect, um, the United Nations was incredibly imperial. In, in this regard, 
um, not only for trying to get a city under its control through the General Assembly, um, but also in the negotiations and discussions with uh, Palestinians in particular, uh, but also um, Arab delegations and Zionists as well. Uh, the construction of the Jerusalem question, which it was often called, was created by the United Nations to only be solved by the United Nations as well. So that's what I'm going to be discussing today. So we've got the, the, the initial United Nations in Lake Success, um, New York here. And this whole affair was incredibly scrambly as well. This, this was very, very rushed. Um, so the mandate, of course, was supposed to end midnight, May 15th, 1948. Um, and there had been discussions about what to do with Jerusalem. Uh, going back at least until 1916 with, with the Sykes-Picot agreement. There was a, a brief sentence, a brief sentence there. Uh, Hussein McMahon correspondence as well. Um, little, little discussions of mentioning, okay, what is this, what is Jerusalem going to look like? And that ended up with um, the League of Nations mandate. Um, so the, the, the British, as, as we've heard earlier today as well, the British had a massive in Palestine, and Jerusalem just kept being pushed along in, in a lot of ways. These ideas of making the city international, um, which is another way of saying not Palestinian, not Israeli, or not Zionist, uh, future Israeli. Um, and then later on as well, especially with uh, King Abdullah of Jordan um, not being Jordanian, as Abdullah had big goals of being the king of Jerusalem as well. Um, so a lot of discussions uh, through, through the League of Nations, through the mandate, and then through UNSCOP. So the United Nations Special Commission on Palestine that set up the famous um, partition of, of Palestine, which as it's well, well known, um, created a Jewish zone and a Palestinian zone um, the two-state solution that we're, that we're still unfortunately grappling with. Um, but it also created a third zone, this international zone. And internationalization is another, another clunky term. I like to think of it as a cookie cutter. So you're, you've, got a, you've got it nicely rolled out, you've got your dough, it's all wonderful. And then you cookie cutter in Jerusalem out of this Palestine um, Palestine picture. So it's just a little, about a 30 kilometer radius around, around Jerusalem um, that the United Nations uh, saw was not fit to be uh, Palestinian or Arab or Jewish. It needed to be separate, it needed to be protected, um, and it needed to be safeguarded. And the United Nations took that upon itself. Uh, through through UNSCOP, which of course was boycotted by um, by Palestinians, um, and this this whole internationalization scheme was very much pushed against um, by by people on the ground of Palestinians, of Arabs, and of um, Zionists as well, who saw 
various different means for Jerusalem and different government features for Jerusalem. So this, this is the little area that, that the UN attempted. And there was nothing really an unscop about what Jerusalem was gonna be. And as May 15th, 15th approached in the General Assembly, in, in discussions going on there, it just kept getting pushed and nothing happened until May 7th. So we're talking a week before Britain's pulling out. This has been known for a very long time. The, the mandate was going to end and the UN didn't start discussing this until May 7th. Um, and what was, what was given for criteria for, for choosing a municipal commissioner as well was that it needed to be approved by four different entities. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't just something that the UN could declare, but there had to be four entities, but it's really important who these four entities were. So one of them, of course, the United Nations. One of them was uh, the provisional Zionist government. Uh, the third one was the British High Commissioner for Palestine. So of course, we're still in the mandate period. So the British High Commissioner for Palestine had to approve this. If that's not imperial, I don't know what is. Um, and then the fourth one was a vague conglomeration of Arab delegations. And that's something else that's really, really important about this whole project is the homogenization of Arab identities by, by the United Nations. There is no direct consultation with Palestinians. And through all of the conversations and conferences, um, Zionists got an individual mention. It was always just Arabs. Uh, whether that was racial or what that was. Um, it didn't matter if it was Egyptian, Iraqi, Jordanian, it was just Arabs. And there was never any, I never saw anything throughout this project or through what the United Nations was doing of much <clears throat> direct discussions about Palestinians or any direct consultation with Palestinians either. So. The United Nations, the British High Commissioner for Palestine, the provisional Zionist government, and this vague conglomeration of Arab um, delegates had to sign off on this and it ended up being a Jordanian individual who signed off on the municipal commissioner. And there was a massive promotion of religion as well as a reason why the United Nations needed to intervene um, so this, this continuing of, of the trope of religious violence being at the heart of any um, Palestinian Zionist um, conflict. So Judaism and Islam, the, the source or the, what, what the United Nations decided upon was to have a neutral Christian uh, commissioner. Fitting, you look at the delegations for the United Nations at this time as well, very early on um, in the United Nations and the vast, vast majority uh, would have been very pleased to see a Christian um, quasi mayor of Jerusalem as, as well. Um, and there was also a really big emphasis on pacifism as conflict broke out at the, um, or even the predicted conflict that was gonna break out and continue after the Nakba, um, the pacifism of this municipal commissioner was really highly promoted, which was why 
it was, it was decided to be a Quaker. Um, and the first, uh, the first person who was decided upon was this stern looking individual, uh, Clarence Pickett. Um, this is from the back cover of his autobiography. Um, he was from, from Pennsylvania. And he was, he was the first person who was fully accepted to be the municipal commissioner. Uh, it just so happened that on the day that he was called um, about this post, he had a doctor's appointment and his doctor was worried about his health. And so he did not accept the position. Um, had he not had the doctor's appointment, maybe he would have, but um, he decided not to. And he was asked to pass along another name for consideration. And the name that he passed along is the is the main person who I, I discuss in, in this article. His name was Harold Evans, who had a tie bigger than anybody seen. Um, and this was the picture chosen on, for the front page of the New York Times on, on May 14th, 1948. So this, this person was going to be, Harold Evans was going to be the special municipal commissioner for Jerusalem. He was a lawyer from Philadelphia very little experience to no experience in um, Palestinian politics, Arab history, anything like that. He was chosen mostly because he was a Quaker, because he was a pacifist, um, and because the United Nations was determined to solve their own question through their own means. And, and somebody in the United States, and I have to think about proximity as well here of Philadelphia to New York as well. So there's lots of geographical connections within the United States that are at play here too. So Harold Evans was decided to take, um, to take the job, even though as the title indicates, he said in, in the New York Times that I won't say I wanted the job, but he felt obligated to, to take it, especially after Clarence Pickett did not. So he's the municipal commissioner, but because he's a pacifist, he refused, refuses to have um, military protection to go to Jerusalem immediately um, after the proclamation of the state of Israel and the Nakba. So he doesn't go to Jerusalem. He's, he's essentially the mayor, but he does not go. He's finally convinced to go to Cairo about a week later, where him and another um, Quaker are just kind of waiting out, waiting this out. And they wait some more, and they wait more. Uh, and finally, in early June, um, so a good, a good three weeks after he's been, he's been named the UN representative and the special municipal commissioner, he finally sets off on a tour of, uh, of the Mashriq, of the Middle East. And he stays in Jerusalem for two hours. That is it. He's there for two hours. He, he goes around to a, a couple of other places. He'll go to Tel Aviv, um, to, to Amman. Um, and then he returns to Cairo. And he realizes when he's in Cairo that he can do squat diddly. He can do very little for, for any of this. And he resigns two days later. Um, he, he just knows that there's what the UN has in store is not fit for him, and there's just he can't fulfill his duties 
um, without being under military protection. The other thing that plays a factor in his resignation was the same week that he was hired, Count Folke Bernadotte was also hired to be the, um, to essentially oversee peace um, in, in Palestine, but with a special, easy for me to say, special um, emphasis on Jerusalem as well. So Evans thought that there was two people hired to do the, exactly the same thing. Um, so when, when he left Cairo, um, there was an interim commissioner, uh, Pablo de Azcarate, who was, who was named, he was a, dip, a Spanish diplomat who had been involved in, in Jerusalem, but he did not have nearly the same, the same powers um, that, that Evans would have had. Um, Clarence Pickett remarked at, when, when Harold Evans accepted the job, um, that he could almost rule as a dictator, which is a really, really odd moniker to put on a pacifist lawyer from Philadelphia who's governing Jerusalem through the United Nations, but we'll, we'll maybe overlook that a little bit. Um, and Azkarate, as the interim commissioner, did not have those same wide sweeping powers. He was just more a placeholder. But the United Nations did not really engage in having um, having more municipal commissioner discussions because by the, by the middle of June and Evans' departure, um, the, the the conflict as, as a result of the Nakba um, had the UN looking looking elsewhere, and they also instituted something called the Palestine Conciliation Commission, which is where which is what I looked at mostly for this, for this project. Um, so this article comes out of my, my master's thesis. Um, and this Palestine Conciliation Commission um, was partially um, to, to, to work with Palestinian refugees. Uh, and then the other part was the internationalization of Jerusalem. So the municipal, municipal commissioner took a back seat until September of 1949, where we see this come up once again as the as the PCC, as the Palestine Conciliation Commission releases its draft instrument. Um, Alberto Gonzalez Fernandez, a Colombian diplomat, was asked to be the special municipal commissioner once again to complement um, to complement the, the the draft report. Um, and he lasted nine days on, on the job. He, he never went to Jerusalem, but he, he saw his appointment as being belated. He saw the PCC report as essentially filling his role. Um, this was also about pretty much a year to the day of uh, Count Bernadotte's assassination in Jerusalem as well and was was very aware of that, where the UN did not seem to be aware of that. Um, also, his wife was very sick. It was just not a good situation. And he, he thought about it. He did a couple of official things, but then nine days later, he stepped back. And that was the last real attempt at the, at the special municipal commissioner by the United Nations. Um, it was just... And, and the same with internationalization of Jerusalem as well. This cookie cuttering of, of the city really died out after, um, after 1949. 
and after September of 1949. There were a few letters sent by various Arab delegations um, who, who saw the continuing encroachment of Zionists. Um, Zionists continued moving buildings and offices into Jerusalem, so looking to the United Nations to do something about it, and those letters barely got any, any response as well. And then there were joint letters from um, Arab delegations, but internationalization never happened. And even though there were two special municipal commissioners named, um, spent, a, spent a total of about three weeks on the job and two hours in the city that were assigned to govern. And the, and the question as well, and what ties all, all of together is the interrupted futures. So then the interrupted future for who? Um, this was an interrupted future for the United Nations. Um, this was solely a UN venture. It was never something that Palestinians wanted, that um, Arabs wanted, that Zionists wanted. This was a top-down, very problematic aspect. Um, the, the special municipal commissioner never had any, any real support um, from, from populations in Palestine. Um, neither really did the internationalization of Jerusalem until about 1952, 1953, when the, when the Zionist encroachment on the city was, was really, really heightened. Um, so UN, th this was all about the UN. Um, and yeah, and so when, we, when, we're, when we're thinking about the interrupted futures, I think we need to see um, what, what, what the UN was doing. And it's easy as well, and a lot of the historiography about the UN focuses on the outcome rather than, rather than the intent. So if we're looking at the outcome of this, it's a pretty minor story. The UN tried something, it didn't work, oh no. But if we're looking at the intent, and the intent of being an imperial uh, venture and an attempt to take away a city um, from various populations um, becomes much, much more important. So, thank you. Thank you, uh, Harris. Um, we already have a few questions. Um, uh, one uh, actually was posed earlier, but, I'm, but I think it's a, a relevant question to you. Um, about the, the power of the UN. Uh, and it's a question from Hugh McGuire who asks, are we assuming that the UN has and had more power than it, than it does? Um, the confusion at the end of World War II, which was a continuation of World War I, I suspect made Zionism a minor issue and the Muslim population was regarded as unimportant. Is this true? So I guess uh, if you could speak to that question. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the power of the UN comes up a lot like what what exactly is it how does it work all all of this and this is this is an interesting time as well so we're seeing the united nations inherit something from the league of nations its predecessor that famously did very little to promote world peace and some might say exacerbated a, a lot of the conflict that happened globally as, as well um the UN wanted to put a stamp on, on, on itself um, and on, on the world. And Jerusalem was a really ambitious swing at, at this. 
um, had had the, the, there been an internationalization of the city, which was not unprecedented either. There was um, like Gdansk in, in, in Poland and Trieste as well in what's today's Italy um, had been somewhat international cities through the League of Nations. So this was not this was not entirely new. What was new was the ambition of taking of taking Jerusalem and plucking it out of, of Palestine. Um, I don't really know about the power question too, too much. I think it's much better to be looking at it in, in terms of that um, outcome versus intent as well. Um, if you're looking at the outcome for this, the UN had very little had very little power, um, but it did have the power to implement um, imperialism and through its key member states as well at this time. Um, and even still, you look at the, the construction of the Security Council now of having of having veto power. And if anything um, negative comes up about Israel, it's instantly, instantly shut down. Um, so it has the power to be imperial. Um, whether or not it has the power to internationalize a city, I don't know if that's super relevant. It has the intention or had the intention of, of doing that. Um, oh yeah, I, that, that's how I'd answer that. Thanks. Uh, we also have a question from Sam Bahur. Uh, what was the position of the Jordanian who signed off on behalf of the Arabs? Um, you mentioned before that there had to be four parties and, and the one who kind of gave the agreement from the, the, the Arab delegation mm -hmm. was a Jordanian. So do you know what his position was? Um, so he was based in New York as, as well as, as like the Jordanian representative um, to, to the UN. And Jordan, Transjordan was not part of the UN at this time. So I suspect that the um, signing off on this was part of the part of the plan um in in the hopes of like currying favor with the united nations to get jordan um a seat at the general assembly that's that's fully an assumption on my part um but there there were lots of discussions of like jordan wanting to do certain things to get into the united nations uh same with israel after it was created um so like likely had something to do something to do with that. Um, there was very little about communications between um, Al-Husseini, al who, was, who was the individual who signed off on it, and um, King Abdullah or um, Abu Tawfiq al-Huda, the, the prime minister at the time. Um, but my guess is that it had to do with um, being admitted in, into the United Nations. And a uh, um, question from Stephanie Reicher, right? Um, you mentioned uh, kind of at the end the, that in the 1950s, there was kind of uh, particular Zionist encroachment on Jerusalem. Um, could you say a little bit more about that? Mm -hmm. So that was more like the government offices um, as well, which were meant to be in Tel Aviv. And what what a lot of these letters were, were writing about was saying, hey, UN, you you came up with this partition plan that said that Jerusalem was not going to be um, Zionist, and now there's these this, this 
the movement of um, of government offices in into Jerusalem. Why have you backtracked on on this? Essentially, um, these were not specifically from Palestinians. Um, lots of lots of joint letters. Uh, Libya was a really big contributor to 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 these letters, um, and, and it was basically just saying to to the United Nations, it's only been four years. Why why are you allowing this? Um, and these letters continued in uh, like 52, 53, and 54 before the trail runs a little bit little bit thin because there was nothing. Um, Nothing really done. I suspect uh, 56 would be would would be the end um, as well. Uh, but basically, it was it was pleas from various Arab Arab governments, um, and this is where we kind of see the actualization of the homogenization homogenization as well, where, where Arab governments wrote together to the United Nations because that's how the United Nations saw. The Arab world in in a lot of ways um, to stop the movement of um, of official offices from Tel Aviv into into Jerusalem. Thank you. Um, all right. If there's no further questions for now for for Harris, we'll move to uh, our final presentation. Last but certainly not least, um, Palestine Eili will uh, present on the article uh, her contribution with uh, Jawad Dukhran. Um, to the uh, special issue on the 1963 general plan for Jerusalem um, and the unrealized vision for the eastern part of the city. Philistine, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you, Alex. Um, so uh, this is an article I wrote together with uh, Jawad Dukhan, who um, can't be with us today, unfortunately. I'd like to introduce him. So he's an, an architect, a researcher, and curator based in Amman who has worked for Columbia University Studio X and who's currently the national project manager for the climate change project at UN Habitat Jordan. Um, so we, yeah, we, we worked on this 1963 general plan for Jerusalem, which he basically um, showed me uh, a few years back and um, which I then um, promised myself one day to work on together with him because it's, it's a truly unique document um, and uh, which uh, basically, uh, yeah, which, which basically only exists in the private archives of his um, late uncle, Ahmed Dukhan. Um, so, um, uh, Laura, yes, if you would like to, to start sharing the, the title slide and uh, yeah, I, I realized that Harris and I have the same aesthetic uh, choices <laughs> for today. Um, so in this article, Jawad and I analyzed the comprehensive urban plan that was commissioned by the municipality of Jerusalem from Brown Engineers International in 1963, in light of the status of the city within Jordanian governance and politics, and also compared to earlier British plans. This plan was the basis for the 1966 town scheme that was submitted to the Jordanian government by Henry Candle, who was in charge of city planning for the municipality between 63 and 66, knowing that he already held this office during the mandate years. Faced with the extreme reduction of the space for urban development after the division of the city, this 1963 plan ambitioned to lay the basis for a complete city 
and to compensate for the lack of vital infrastructures. We can go to the second slide. <clears throat> so I'm sharing with you the table of contents of um, this uh, plan, which, which counts 144 pages and which virtually deals with all aspects of life in the city, as you can see. According to the authors, the plan resulted from extensive consultations with what they call responsible bodies, officials, officers, and notables concerned with the affairs and welfare of Jerusalem and its future, along with, as they say, sound principles of planning. Since the War of 1948 and the division of the city, the truncated eastern part of Jerusalem lacked vital infrastructures and economic opportunities. This was the result of mandate era planning and development that had favored the western part of the city over its eastern segment. And this was later compounded by the division of the city. <clears throat> Furthermore, the ethnic cleansing of the western neighborhoods and villages in 1948 had forced tens of thousands of Palestinians to seek refuge in the already cramped old city and adjacent neighborhoods. The municipality of East Jerusalem, under Jordanian control as of December 1948, was faced with a huge number of immediate problems to be resolved before it could eventually turn its attention to urban planning. Now, most construction occurring during that period was actually located outside the planning area of approximately 12 square kilometers. So one of the first recommendations of the 1963 plan was to expand the planning area to 75 square kilometers by including several adjacent villages. The plan paid particular attention to the restoration and protection of the old city. And I think you hear the, the sounds of mandate plans here and proposed to create also integrated residential neighborhoods for future developments outside of the old city. The plan contained um, concepts for constructing a civic neighborhood, concentrating local administration and cultural institutions, but official government buildings were conspicuously absent from the list of plan structures. We can go to the next slide. Um, so the concept of residential neighborhoods actually really um, interested uh, myself and Joad. Um, you, you see this, um, this image of these um, rectangular neighborhoods. They were conceived for five to 10,000 persons and uh, were to be characterized by the absence of major streets within its limits and the presence of a central area for elementary schools, neighborhood stores, places of worship, a center of assembly, and a clinic, all arranged in a campus-like manner, with an abundance of trees, large playing fields, and with smaller recreational areas closer to the houses for the smaller children. These are the words of the authors. The authors proposed a large square neighborhood made up of nine small squares to maximize land use considering the provision of open areas for playgrounds and other public facilities as a means of reducing the size of individual parcels for houses. So as we can see clearly, the entire concept takes into account the limited space on which East Jerusalem could develop and the general situation of the city. But at the same time, it tries to create an ideal setting for families and small children. 
There is, however, a dissonance between these plans and uh, resettlement schemes for old city residents that are referred to elsewhere in the plan. The residents of overcrowded areas of the old city were to be resettled in what the authors call basic shell public housing units, leaving the interior finishing to be completed by the occupants. A proposal of a very different standard of living, far from the concept of the integrated residential neighborhood you see here. There are no clear indications as to the location of these resettlement areas in this text, but one of the maps shows the western parts of Aysawiya south of Shafat as the primary site, whereas the eastern part of Aysawiya was designated as an urban residential district. Um, I'd like to also talk very briefly about another aspect of this plan, which concerns um, the image of the old city and um, in many ways is a, is a sort of deja vu of, of uh, mandate um, plans for, for the old city. So the stated objective of the 1963 plan was to assure the preservation and enhancement of the old city and to relate the unique role of this old and venerated human settlement to the family of other great cities throughout the world. Um, and this plan also refers to Jerusalem as a religious capital um, several times. And um, there's, a, there's one um, quote from the, from the plan, which I think sort of resumes um, the entire vision that they had of the old city and by extension of Jerusalem. Um, and so let me, let me quote extensively. In the usual sense of the term, Jerusalem has no parks. But in a unique sense, all of Jerusalem has park-like character. In dreaminess and poetic thought, one can visualize the Haram area following the advent of an abundant water supply for Jerusalem with broad expanses of lawns evenly rolled, walkways carefully trimmed, an occasional well-tended flower garden and shade trees throughout. Above this carpet, one sees the magnificence of the architecture of the many domes, minarets, prayer niches and arcades growing out of the dignified stone pavement upon which man walks and worships as nowhere else this side of paradise. I'm not going to dwell more into this, but I think you, you get the idea um, and, and you, you can see the sort of continuity with, with mandate era plans and, and particularly actually with the philosophy of Henry Candle, who had been the, the um, chief urban planner in the 1930s in, in Jerusalem and now was again, again fulfilling this function for the Jordanian government. Another thing that caught our attention as we read through this um, plan was the particular status attributed to Jerusalem as a sort of civic center and a local of cultural leadership. Um, so in general, this overall land use plan um, divides the city according to various functions and characteristics. The old city and the Mount of Olives were set apart as monumental sites of historical interest framed by green spaces. Mm. The urban center was the modern commercial heart of the city, whereas the transportation district to be created would serve the city's inhabitants as well as tourists. What interests us here is the civic center that involved the construction of a municipal administrative center and also of an auditorium west of Nablus Road and the reservation of the area between Salahuddin Road and Nablus Road 
as a predominantly open area for institutions and cultural activities. <coughs> Sorry. Moreover, the plan called for the construction of an amphitheater outside the southeast corner of the old city and for that of a national university near the airport in order to, as the authors say, assure and maintain the cultural leadership for Jerusalem throughout the Middle East. This university was envisioned as a four-year university and was an integral part of a strategy of enhancing the position of Jerusalem in terms of cultural leadership and prominence within the nation. And this is a quote. While the absence of government institutions clearly signified Jerusalem's lack of official political status, this plan seems to attribute a different sort of leadership role to the city, namely in the realms of culture and higher education. Was this then the possible niche that Jerusalem was to hold within the Hashemite kingdom? Coupled with the civic center concept, this approach seems in any case to be an attempt to attribute a particular status to the city and to its inhabitants. Um, so my voice is starting to, <laughs> to leave me. I'm going to conclude rather quickly. Um, the plans of 1963 and the town scheme adopted in 1966 were interrupted by war, military occupation, and colonial policies of ethnic cleansing and expropriation. Not knowing what was ahead, the authors of the 1963 plan set a large horizon for the implementation of their proposal. They wrote, a recommendation need not necessarily be feasible before it is included in the overall plan. If the objective is a desirable one, the time may arrive when its implementation will become feasible. Thank you. Thank you so much, Philistine. It seems uh, almost cruel now to ask you questions uh, since your voice is, uh, <laughs> you've already, uh, um, you know, given so much of your voice to us today. Um, but I do want to invite any questions for Philistine or any of our panelists um, at this time, um, put them in the Q&A uh, box. Um, I have a few questions for Philistine, but I'll, I'll let you take a, a sip of water first. Um, uh, but again, kind of questions for any of our participants um, are welcome. Um, we'll have an open Q&A uh, if there's any further questions for any of the earlier presentations. Um, uh, two questions for Philistine. Um, one, you mentioned the kind of plans to resettle uh, old city residents kind of outside, you know, uh, and and kind of the, the, the distinction between the kind of, you know, I don't know if it's a garden city, but kind of residential planning um, versus the kind of rather um, austere sounding plans for the old city residents that were going to be removed. And, and kind of it makes me think recently in, in Jerusalem Quarterly, we've published a few articles on um, the kind of uh, the establishment of Shafat camp and the kind of removal of um, refugees and others who were in um, what was called the Moascar camp in the old city um, to Shafat. Um, and I was curious if that was kind of, if there's any connection between those, those plans and the plans you see in the 1963 plan to move um, old city residents, did they have in mind the kind of residents of, of Moascar? Um, and then, uh, I mean, it's, it strikes me also that kind of, um, you know, putting out this idea, when you mentioned kind of the, the lack of any kind of 
government buildings or kind of political uh, buildings, whether that also speaks to kind of the, the fear of the of the Hashemite um, government of the uh, kind of producing a, a potentially a rival kind of political, um, you know, uh, or kind of a rival center for for um, power and, and kind of political legitimacy and, and authority. Um, uh, given the kind of their reliance on um, British backing, you know, from everything, you know, from the military to the the kind of town planning or city planning. Yeah, thanks for these questions, Alex. Actually, um, yeah, th there seems to be a sort of a common genealogy um, in this resettlement scheme idea. And I, I had a look at Christy Berger's article about the Masker camp. Um, and the way um, this resettlement was was um, uh, planned by UNRWA, basically in um, in Shofat. I don't know if um, this sort of genealogy be becomes clearer in the actual 1966 town scheme that Kendall developed, because I didn't have a chance to look at the entire document. I didn't get my hold on uh, my hands on it, so I don't know. Maybe maybe that 1966 town scheme make some of these things more explicit. And I think it would be really interesting to look at it. Um, and um, and also, I was quite frustrated because I didn't really see it pinned down in the plans, which areas they were talking about, um, which informal uh, settlements they wanted to dismantle. Um, but yeah, I think part of that becomes clearer in the 1966 plan. And, and actually, Vincent Lemire's article and, and his book, um, I think, might also um, provide some, some answers on that. Um, yeah, and the other question about uh, the, the place attributed to Jerusalem is, of course, uh, vital. I mean, uh, Jerusalem was the only city, aside from Amman, which became uh, Amana. Uh, and not uh, a Beladia. So there was a sort of upgrade in status for Jerusalem, um, only rivaled by, by Amman. But clearly, Jerusalem wouldn't to be uh, in any way a rival to Amman. And Amman centralized um, many functions, not only government functions, but also economically. Um, it really, by the 50s, had already become a sort of clearinghouse for, um, for the economy um, of both banks. And um, so the the status attributed to the city um, was always uh, thought in relationship to um, what was held to to be the the necessary centrality, let's say, of of Jordan, which was Amman. Thank you. Well, I see we're coming just about to uh, eleven thirty now, and I don't see any. Um, additional questions, but I just want to thank uh, now all of you for for um, your contributions to the special issue and and for joining us today. Thank you, Julio. Thank you, Sami. Thank you, Harris. Um, and especially thank you, Philistine, for organizing this issue and for organizing um, this panel. Uh, thanks to uh, Lisa Taraki, my co-editor, and to Laura and IPS. Um, and thank you to all of uh, you for joining us.